Now to another shocking crime. A 58-year-old man has been found guilty of trying to kill a Victoria police officer. That this was an attempt murder case that we have been dealing with uh, against Constable Douglas Hunt. That is what started me on the journey of giving myself permission to be, you know, mentally injured and to put the work in to get back. Officer Constable Lane Douglas Hunt responded to a shoplifting call at this downtown 7-Eleven. As she was leaving the convenience store, she found herself in a fight for her life. Her head grabbed, her eyes gouged, and her neck and hands slashed with a knife. Toughness is the ability of people to focus on what's important now in the moment. It could have been a murder trial. If the blade had been 1 16th of an inch closer, it would have entered her carotid artery. But it was Douglas Hunt's quick reflexes and training that she saved her life. Got to be so and in then the post event and recovery afterwards. And I did, and now I'm, you know, living my best life with PTSD, and it's, it's totally okay. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Patty Steinfort, your host. And today we have a crack team of two people I look at and I, I can't imagine doing their jobs. First up, we have Sergeant Lane Douglas Hunt, who has served as a police officer for more than a decade so far, mostly on the front lines in patrol, including as part of the emergency response team, an explosives technician, detective in the special victims unit and critical incident stress management team. Welcome to the show, Lane. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to meet you, and and it's nice to see you again, Brian. Yeah, also on the show here, we have Brian Willis, who served as a full-time police officer for 25 years and is now president and CEO of Winning Mind Training, promoting excellence in training and leadership development, and specifically working with critical incident teams, police, and other high-stakes environment. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks, Patty. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you both. And and as I read through those those pre-show notes there, as I'm, I'm describing and introducing each of you, I'm like, when I first read these, as I was getting set for the call, I was struck by, if this was a Hollywood script, we've basically got like five characters in one there, just reading through all of the roles that each of you have played. And I'm sure if it was a Hollywood script and they said that was one person, I'd be like, come on, that's not real. But apparently it is. Lane, you're calling in from Vancouver, Canada right now. Is that right? Victoria on Vancouver Island. Okay. And and that is, I say to people, that is, for me, one of the most beautiful parts of the world for about two months of the year. I'm I'm from Australia, so the snow and the cold doesn't really do it for me. (laughs) But in the middle of summer, I've been there, thanks to my work with the Toronto Blue Jays, I've I've been to BC during the middle of summer, and oh my God, what a beautiful part of the world. Just so you know, Patty, Vancouver Island is great for 10 months of the year. 10 months? Two, it doesn't even snow here. It it snows like once every three years. Does it get rainy though? So I'm from Melbourne, which is not exactly the hottest part of Australia, but it's like even there, I would say the winter, besides being the, the season where football is played, there's not much else going on in Melbourne. There's cool bars and stuff. And so I'm sure like I know Vancouver has a good, it's got a bit of a Melbourne feel about it. But that summer sitting on the water, I was like, oh, my God, it's amazing. You're telling me that – so Vancouver is not Victoria, so that's an important point. Is Victoria better than Vancouver? I won't publish this. Yes, I will. Victoria has the same weather as Vancouver. However, it's – you get used to it. Like, after this, it is raining right now, but I'm going to go mountain biking at a mountain bike park, and it's going to be beautiful because it's, you know, this beautiful West Coast forest and – it's like a Disneyland for it's outdoor the, sports. It's is it the Seattle of, of Canada? Yeah, yeah. 
No, okay, okay. But with yeah, better wilderness. Okay, wow, that's yeah. pretty pretty good yeah. call. Maybe, yeah, without, or, maybe more like Oregon. Without the anarchists. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it reminds me of my first visit to Canada, which was up there to get a visa to start working over here. And I was just like, you know, Canadians are known internationally as the more friendly version of Americans, right? <laughs> and so I'm up there in this beautiful place and I'm getting a visa and I'm with the more friendly version of Americans. And I, and I was like, how good is it here? But then it turns out that even in friendly BC, just walking from my hotel to 7-Eleven, I think it was, that I was a little bit confronted by some disagreements and a bit of a scuffle and then police rolled in and, and it just goes to show that even with the friendly people, it's not always safe and sound and happy days, sunshine and rainbows. And so that leads me to my first question, Lane. In Even though Canada is a nice place and BC is heaven on earth at times, you do a job that takes you to the darker, shadier areas and the more scary parts of that. Why did you choose to go into doing what you do? Policing, I, I knew I wanted to be a cop pretty early on. I decided when I was 18. And, you know, I found it was just a profession that really aligned with the values that I was raised on, which is, you know, helping people. And it's probably one of the more ultimate team sports that I've ever encountered. I, I grew up playing team sports. I was big into basketball. And policing is one of those dynamic, you know, just incredible teams where you rely on your partner and, and your colleagues to, you know, go through sometimes life and death situations. So it called to the kind of adrenaline junkie in me and, and that side of me that wants to help people and challenge myself. It's like you mentioned, there's, there's five characters in one. Well, it's a job where I get to do a number of different roles and it's never boring. So it called to a lot of different aspects of my personality and it, it fits me well. So never boring is a good way to describe what I imagine. If I lined up all the police movies and TV shows, like you basically live all of those in any given day. And so I'm sure it's never boring. You also use the words there, help people. And it's a, it's a key part of a lot of the guests on this show who do serve either in first responder roles or in the military, that their calling is one of helping others, not just necessarily getting their own fix of adrenaline. And Brian, I'm curious that obviously you served for a long time yourself as a police officer, but now you've gone into working and helping train other police officers. Is that really the part of that evolution for you of helping people, but now you're helping the people who help the people? Absolutely. And to me, it's, you know, when I started and I'm like Lane in that I always wanted to be a police officer, but I took a, a bit of a deviation when I was a teenager and ended up quitting school and being homeless and living out of the backseat of a 1964 Plymouth four months and eventually got back on track and was able to start that career. And when I started, I wanted to be a, a tactical officer, SWAT officer. Uh, and I had that opportunity to do that a little bit leading up to and during the 1988 Winter Olympics. So just to put this in framework time frame, I mean, I started in 1979, so uh, 41 and a half years ago. But for me, what became the, I guess what turned into a calling is when I got into training and I was unhappy with some of the things we were doing in training. I had suffered a pretty significant knee injury that resulted in reconstructive surgery, which kind of shifted me out of patrol sergeant role into an administrative role. And then I got involved in delivering the training. And that for me is when it really became a calling and a, a true passion around 
finding ways to continue to prepare people for the challenges that they're going to face in their career and in their lives? And what can we do over the long haul to set people up for success, set the human beings in the profession that are doing a very difficult job in very complex and chaotic environments? And what can we do to set them up for success over the long long haul, physically, mentally, emotionally? And so that's been kind of my path for the last 30 years as I've been involved in training for 31 years now and uh, on a full-time basis for, you know, well over two decades. So yes, that for me has become helping the helpers to be better at what they do and to thrive not only in their careers, but in their lives and then post-career because we don't live very long generally after we retire. So we need to change a lot of those things. Yeah. That's an amazing to hear you describe that and particularly to say you started in 1979. I started life in 1979. So it really puts it in perspective here. I'm going to be soaking up a lot of knowledge. I also love the fact that we've got here, you know, this is the reason why I invited you both on the show was we have a frontline operator right now and also someone who coaches, so who has explored the how do you actually teach that because that's really relevant to the people who are listening. We can talk all we want about the stories of frontline and we will, but it's about, okay, well, how do we actually get better at preparing for that? And, and I'm really looking forward to digging into that nuance. And so one of the questions that we ask of every guest who comes on the program, and I'm interested in hearing from each of you, both at the operator facing the fire level, but also as someone who has to teach that, I'll ask you first, Lane, what does toughness mean to you in your experience as an operator in some of the most intense situations that humans can imagine? You know, it's funny, my definition of toughness has changed over my 13-year career. When you're a rookie and you start at the police academy, your idea, and certainly in that time when the culture was a little bit different, it was, you know, how much can I withstand while keeping my mouth shut and putting one foot in front of the other and just continuing on? And that is something that I did and I practiced until... I had a really bad day at work and that didn't work for me anymore. That's actually how I met Brian. So I would say now after, you know, 13 years of being a magnet and and having lots of experience in, in kind of tough situations, I look at it as the ability in considering kind of the three pillars of resiliency, which I would consider, you know, physical, mental, and emotional. I look at it as the ability to bend and not break. And for me, that's, you know, it's an ongoing evolution and a journey and something that requires attention to each of those three pillars and a practice. So for me, my answer has really changed over the years. And, and that's where I am in my, in my journey right now. It's training myself to bend and not break. That's an awesome definition that I've heard many times over the last few years. And likewise, my evolution, and, and I've seen other people go through that transition from it's just hanging on and being gritting your teeth and being stronger for longer to actually being able to be adjusted and be flexible when that's necessary to survive or to perform or execute and you mentioned a couple of things there one was practice which we would definitely want to get to by the end of the show is what does that actually look like in practice how do you actually develop that skill and number two was you had a bad day at work. I definitely want to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it because I want to hear about that bad day. But Brian, before we go there, to you now and and your definition of toughness, having served for longer than or been involved in the police force, either as an operator or a trainer for as long as I've been alive, I'm very interested to hear how you define 
toughness in that context. And I think early in my career, I'm like Lane, is I would have had a very similar definition early. What I've come to figure out over the last number of years, and for the last 20 years, I've been teaching a concept called this question, what's important now, which I got from Lou Holtz, and I refer to it as life's most powerful question. And I believe now that toughness is the ability of people to focus on what's important now in training and preparation, in performance in the moment, and in then the post-event and recovery afterwards. So for example, what's important now might be that, you know, if my alarm goes off at three in the morning and I start a 12-hour shift at six in the morning, if I'm committed to getting up and getting my workout in, then what's important now is to get out of bed, get my butt out of bed, get my workout in, and then get to work and go work that 12-hour shift. What's important now at the end of that shift is to come up with a ritual to shift roles out of cop mode when I come home back into uh, husband and father mode. What's important now is to be protective, super protective of my sleep and focus on the nutrition. And what's important now after the event, and, and Lane can speak to this as well, is that we've started to understand the importance of looking after our people in advance, but also after the event that... When I started, and certainly probably even when Lane started, the mentality was suck it up, soldier on, big boy, big girls, don't cry. If you're something bothering you, you're weak, and if you're weak, get out. And so now what we realize is that uh, what's important now is that if something's bothering you, get the help you need. What's important now is it's okay to be okay, and what's important now is it's okay not to be okay and get the help that you need. So for me, that toughness piece is those the ability to focus on what's important now in the training and preparation phase, the performance phase, and then the post-event recovery phase, whether that's post-shift or post-event like Lane was involved in, but to really have the ability to focus on those elements. And the really cool phrase which I've seen on the bottom of your emails and on your website is that question about how to win is, is what's important now. And that's whether it's winning, getting up in the morning, as you said, winning at practice or winning in those critical crucible moments where they can be in your situations, the difference between life and death. Or for some of the people I work with, the difference between your next contract being $100 million or $0. And these are critical moments, but being able to focus on what's important right now is a key skill. Now, you describe it really well as what's important now, but I'm curious, before we jump to that story from Lane of the bad day at work, what happens when you're in a moment where there's multiple important things? Like what's important now obviously is a flexible concept, but it actually sets us up at times to be like, well, what's important now? Yeah, I need to get up and I need to answer that email and I need to make sure I run, but I also need to make sure that I'm ready to do my presentation. Like there's a lot of things that are important. How do you handle that within the context of that what's important now framework? Well, the reality is, is if we have competing resources, then if we ask the question, what's important now, there's only one of those that's going to be, that's going to come to the front. So what's important now is I need to get my workout in. That will allow me to get my mind focused. That will allow me then when I do my presentation for the talk that I need to give, it will allow me to be in the moment and prepare for that rather than be thinking about, man, I should have got my workout in because now I'm going to get behind. So it's the same you know, an encounter or it's the same, for example, one sergeant with a campus police department used this when a, a helicopter crashed on their campus. 
And he shows up. Now there's a helicopter that's crashed. It's right up against the residence building. There's fuel spilling out of it. There's 400 people on the helicopter, two of them critically injured. There's a crowd forming. His officers panic state. The question, what's important now? When I did that, the highest priority became immediately clear. Now, if we have competing priorities, ultimately only one of them is going to be the highest priority. And so as Lane used the word practice, if I have made this my practice to be continually asking this question 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 times every day, then the answer is going to be clear. Now, what's important now might be that uh, instead of spending uh, two hours in my workout, that I cut it down to 45 minutes so that I have time to do some of those other things. But my experience is, is that this will bring tremendous clarity to sort through the multiple choices that we face. Yeah, it's a, it's a conversation I often have with people who are trying to start a meditation practice or a mindfulness practice where it's, you know, it, I can do this mental work, but I also have a lot of other stuff to do. But when we remember the second, third order, fourth order ripple effects of doing this work, it often can help it become more of a priority rather than just, oh, I don't have time today. And maybe that'll be part of the practice discussion later on in the in the show. But for now, here's the we've had a couple of teasers of this bad day at work. And now we're totally focused on the on the main story here, Lane, not to put too much pressure on you. But can you describe what that experience was for the people at home who are sitting here? They're, they might be driving to work. They're sitting on their couch. Like they're just chilling out in the normal world with no stress. And you're about to tell us one of the most stressful experiences of your life, I suspect. For sure. So a bit of backstory. When I first got on and I went to police academy, I decided really early on that I wanted to be a member of the tactical unit. It's Canadian SWAT. So I was training from day one for the eventual tryout announcement of ERT. And I was obsessed with this. I was someone who I got hired when I was 21 and I trained incessantly for this tryout. I didn't, they didn't, hadn't announced a tryout yet, but it was, I knew whenever they announced it and I was eligible, I was going to compete. And at that point, there had never been a female to make the SWAT team. Uh, so it was something that I had put a lot of pressure on myself to be ready for. So when you get hired, you're, you know, the whole world is your oyster. You're rolling around with your partner and you're, you know, having the time of your life. There's, you're not kind of jaded by years of job stress and, you know, you're excited and you're young and you're, you're getting after it and taking calls and just learning and is it the buddy cop that we see the, on the TV shows and the movies? It's like you're rolling around with your partner. It's just yes. fun and jokes and like fixing things and saving lives. A hundred percent. It is. You just, you have that innocence almost where you're just, everything is great. So I actually had a partner that was also training for ERT. And so, yeah, we were trying to take all the big calls and we were just having the time of our lives. So two and a half years into my career, I knew, I found out early on that I was a bit of a magnet. I, you know, had a number of calls that were like, woo, close ones, but, you know, challenged me and and I rose to the challenge and and it instilled in me that I was on the, on the right career path. So the reason I'm telling you that backstory is because two and a half years in on a Monday morning, 9am, January 17, 2011, I'm two and a half years into my training and I'm in peak physical shape. Like I am ready if they announce the tryout tomorrow, I'm ready for that tryout. So I was in good physical condition and just ready for anything. So Monday morning, January 17th, I'm working by myself and I get dispatched to a one man call, which is, you know, kind of the less exciting calls. My partner had something else to do that day. So I'm like, can I, you know, 
enough time on the job where I roll my eyes a little bit at being dispatched to theft of a chocolate bar. Literally, it's a chocolate bar. And at the 7-Eleven. And so downtown Douglas Street, super busy Monday morning. Everyone's hustling and bustling, getting their coffees, going to work. And this call comes in. So I go and I meet the store clerk. He takes me to the back and and is working on the surveillance for me. I'm going to investigate this shoplifter to the best of my abilities. (laughs) And I leave his office and I go towards, it had this big double glass door and I leave the door and this man is walking towards me. And I assume like the thousand other times in my life where someone's walking towards me where I'm holding a door that they want to enter the store. And he approaches me and I'm, I have one hand up on the door. I'm holding the door open for him and I'm smiling at him. And I'm, I say, there you go, sir. He looks at me kind of like a puppy dog does when they're trying to understand what you're saying and tilts his head and says, actually, no. And that was my only hint that something was, was off. And before I know it, he's got, he reaches behind his back and does this huge telegraphing motion towards my head. And he's got a knife and he stabs me in the neck. I put my hands up to block the knife and the fight is on. He stabs me. It went through my ear and, and right onto my carotid artery. Fortunately, it went through my hand before it went into my neck. And he tells me he's going to kill me. And he is trying to kill me. And I believe him. So fights on. I managed to hip toss him to the ground. We go to the ground. He lands on his back. Again, I, I was in peak physical condition at that time, but I certainly got very lucky with how we landed on the ground. I, I ended up getting full mount on him. His wrists hit the pavement and bounced off the sidewalk. And that allowed me to grab both of his wrists and pin them to the ground. I know he stabbed me one more time on the way down in the neck. I could feel it, but just, I had this huge wave of adrenaline that came over me. So I've pinned him to the ground and I need to go for my gun. I need to, this man's trying to kill me. I haven't been able to create distance at this point to go for my gun. Initially, had I dropped my hands down to get my gun, I'd be dead because the my hands wouldn't have taken that initial blow to my neck. So I'm I'm on top of him and I'm, willing myself to let go of him to go for my gun again. I look at the place on his face where I, I want to shoot him and I steel myself to release his hand to go for my gun again. When I do this, he throws the hand that I've just released over my back and tries to fish the knife to the hand that I've just released. And so, you know, my gun was useless to me that day. It may as well have been in my locker still. So I just, I start hitting him as hard as I can. I go into this just blind tunnel. They talk about tunnel vision. I had it just locked on him and am hitting him as hard as I can. And it's not until I hear a woman's voice telling me to stop and that I'm hurting him that I'm kind of taken out of this kind of rage of, you know, trying to defeat him. At that point, I realized that there's people around me. Like I said, it's downtown on the main strip of downtown Victoria. And I realized there's, you know, friendly people around me and that the knife was no longer in his hand and that he had been, you know, effectively neutralized. And I go to put him in handcuffs and I realized that this hand is, I'd broken this hand and I was bleeding pretty badly. And then 
I go to use my other hand and I realized that this hand was completely, I had just skin and meat and I could see my skeleton of my thumb, which was weird because I was not feeling any pain. I could not feel it at all. Um, and they say that pain lets you know that you're alive. And well, at that point, I knew I'd been stabbed in the neck twice and I'm not feeling any pain. So that was a pretty scary realization that, you know, it was just shocking to see that and, and to not be feeling it. So I had actually gotten a 1033 code out, which is the officer in trouble code. And I could hear sirens coming, which was an amazing I talked earlier about that team dynamic. And when you hear your, your friends coming to help you, it's one of the best feelings in the world. So I hear the sirens coming. I know that this guy is not going to get away with doing this to me. And, you know, I'm help is coming. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. I would go to these calls, knife calls, weapon calls. I'd hold doors open for people. But as I'm holding doors open for people, I'm thinking, how am I going to kill them before they kill me? So damn I know having talked to some other people who've gone through similar experiences and episodes, that at that point you realize, okay, this isn't going to go on forever and I am going to survive. And there's obviously a, a response to that in the moment. But firstly, I just want to thank you for sharing this because I've watched you as you've shared that so far. I know the journey's not over. And that's obviously a traumatic experience, even just to recount, let alone to have gone through. And so I really appreciate you sharing that with us right now and with the listeners who can't see physical tenseness in your body as you tell that story as i said the so i've given you a chance to take a breath there as well as i I said once once you recognize that this trauma is about to finish the intense acute trauma but the trauma isn't finished yet as evidenced by the fact that you're still talking about it and it still affects you today Mm -hmm. talk to us a little more about what you know i I assume this is where you and brian start to cross paths is what, what happens as part of what they call in the mission critical community the residue of this incident, the thing that stays with you, even though it's finished and he's subdued and and taken into custody. Certainly. It's funny because 10 years later, it is still, I'm sweating right now. It's it's a hard story to recount. And one of the reasons is because, so when help arrived and I still wasn't feeling any pain, you know, there was a moment where I started to, to black out and I, I thought that I was dying. And, you know, it was... The thought of being 24 years old and, you know, having someone have to go to my house and tell my mom that I had died in the line of duty was just that feeling is something I'll never be able to rid my body of. And in that moment when I was going, uh, I was blacking out. I had like the little black dots in, in the corner of my eyes and I was I was going unconscious and that's what I thought. I was feeling my neck to see how bad the wounds were. And all I was getting back was the meat and blood from my hands. And so I thought I had this huge gaping hole in my neck. And so my friend Shannon arrived on scene and pulled me into the ambulance. I don't remember how I got in the ambulance and she starts ripping off my clothes and telling me like, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I remember kind of just coming to and and thinking like that she was kind of patronizing me and, and just giving me the old like hang in there uh, kid. 
but she said to me like, no, it's your hands. Like your neck is actually, it's fairly superficial. Like you're going to be okay. I'm not finding any other stuff. And she's ripping off my clothes and all my kit. And she's like, you're, you're, it's just your, your hands. And I remember I got, I felt really sick all of a sudden and I puked. I hit the back of the ambulance with just this wave of vomit. Sorry if that's, if people are eating their breakfast right now, but I remember when I, when all that adrenaline basically came out in puke form, I remember feeling all the pain, my hands hurt, my neck hurt, everything hurt. And I just remember feeling so happy that I was alive. Yes. And I was feeling my body and, and I believed her that I was going to be okay. So that's like, to answer your question, that was, I was going to be physically okay. The journey that I went on post that moment where, of course, this is a big story. This is not something that happens very often. You know, cop gets ambushed, holding the door open for someone and not even related to that person, why I was there and stabbed in the neck. Like, it's a big story. So the attention and... So this and, wasn't the thief who's no, Dr. No. It was a random person attacking a police officer. Random, in yep. It was a man who just wanted to kill a cop that day and he happened to pick me. I had never met him before just someone who hated the police. So it was pretty shocking, which is, you know, part of the feelings afterwards. It's just Mm. shocking. So I was at that point still a 24-year-old female trying to do something that females had never done before, get on this team. And there was a bit of a narrative out there that females shouldn't be allowed out on their own as police officers. I was waiting for surgery. I severed two tendons in my hand and I was in the hospital the next morning. And the people in the cubicle next to me were whispering about that. Can you believe they let female officers out on their own? Like that's it's crazy. And I couldn't tell my story because I had, there was going to be a trial. So it was on video and I obviously had a statement of what happened and I couldn't share that. So people couldn't see the video and that, you know, I did in fact handle myself in that moment. And you know, did what I needed to do, go home at the end of the day. But people were fixated on this, you know, why are females out there on their own? Like, that's super dangerous. So I set out to prove that I was, I just, you know, wanted to be tough. And I wanted to prove that narrative wrong. And without being able to tell my story and without people being able to watch the video. So, you know, I did everything I could to come back physically. I drove my hand therapist nuts. I said, you know what? There's going to be an ear two tryout and I'm going to be there. So get me ready. I'll do push-ups on my elbows. I relearned how to shoot with a different grip. I learned how to grab a pull-up bar with a different grip, a barbell. I just was hell-bent on getting back physically. And I was able to do that. I became, I, I won an international fitness competition in New York Months later, I became the first girl on SWAT. I did a bunch of competitions. I won those and I was just out there proving that girls could do amazing things. But that was hiding what was really going on. And that was when I was going home, I was having insane nightmares where I would end up in my kitchen and have no idea how I got there. I had to clear my bedside table of all the furniture because I would wake up fighting and I broke both my lamps on my, on my side tables. And I would wake up just covered in sweat. Um, I couldn't cut food with a knife. I went back to work after two months. I would go to these calls, knife calls, weapon calls. I'd hold doors open for people, but as I'm holding doors open for people, I'm thinking, how am I going to kill them before they kill me? Which is a very weird way to think because I hold doors open for people all the time. And it was unpleasant the way that I was thinking about it, but 
reasonable. It's, it's a, yeah, I was going to say it's adaptive. Like that's yeah. a reasonable thought if you've been in the position you've just described. I don't think I don't know if there's many humans who wouldn't start thinking that way. Right, but it felt crazy, and it mm. felt like my mind was running away from me, and I was I had post traumatic stress disorder, but I was hiding it because I was embarrassed and. We didn't have a culture even 10 years ago where it was safe to talk about and to admit that we were struggling. And so I did all this in complete silence. I didn't tell anyone. I checked all the boxes to get back to work and I got back to work immediately. And so what was the turning point for you then? Because this is, we could make an entire season out of of SVU out of this, but we're not going to. We have have only got an hour here or a little more. We will extend based on how amazing this conversation is. But how do you get to a point where you're like, you recognize that this isn't healthy or that something has to change and that you decide to bend instead of pushing through it? So I didn't. I crashed hard. That's how I met Brian. <laughs> Brian, I think about a year or so after the incident, Brian came to Victoria and did a conference, a class. And so I was in this class and I was with, you know, 30 of my peers from other agencies. And Brian played a radio broadcast of a police officer who'd been shot in the face. This radio broadcast triggered everything. So up to this point, I've been able to deal with the symptoms of my PTSD in by myself. I've been able to hide them. I was trapped in this classroom with 30 of my peers and I was at the back and I had a complete panic attack. My heart started racing. I I was crying. I had a complete emotional breakdown in front of all these people. So now I've essentially been exposed. And I think I scared poor Brian. Well, I didn't because he's a stud and this is, you know, something he recognized as a reaction to a traumatic a trigger, essentially. This radio broadcast was brutal to listen to for anyone in the room. It was a really, a really raw broadcast of an officer in a life or death situation. And so for those who uh, will, we'll put a link at the bottom of the show, if we can find that just to really flesh it out a little bit for listeners who are that keen on being disturbed. Keep going. (laughs) So I just had this, I just had this complete emotional reaction to this broadcast. And so ultimately it exposed me as not being okay and my co-workers recognize this and because it was it was beyond you know a normal reaction and so that night I was told you know you made people nervous today you're clearly not okay you need to go to a doctor and get a diagnosis and so I was now being told I wasn't allowed to go back to work and that that was so you you had to me I had to yeah because my job was everything to me at that time. You know, I didn't have any balance in my life. I was obsessed with work, with, with trying out for the team, with being on the team. And so I was forced to go to the doctor. The doctor immediately diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was in a pool of pity after that. And then Brian actually reached out to me after that and offered me a lifeline. He threw me a, a life preserver and I and I took it. Now you understand that when you reached out, that's why I said as if there's somebody that uh, I always think of and brag about as, as an example of mental and physical toughness, it's uh, Lane. So. Yeah. so I thought you were just saying yes. nice stuff. But you should have put the term badass in there because that <laughs> – oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I get it now. 
because I've listened to a number of your your interviews, and I know that this started all with the high performance group with the U.S. military. That there's a lot of, and I've heard you talk about that. There's a lot of, you know, average citizens that listen to this. Um, so, and I know that you've asked uh, people about hero stories, and you've used the term hero before. Just three definitions of hero that I like to share is Christopher Reeve said that a hero is an ordinary individual who finds the strength to persevere and endure in spite of overwhelming obstacles. So an ordinary individual who finds the strength to persevere and endure in spite of overwhelming obstacles. The ancient Greeks believed that everyone had it within them to be a hero, that a hero was a protector, somebody who had the willingness ability to protect not only themselves, to protect others as well. And that there was three core strengths of a hero. So compassion, so compassion for others, compassion for your brothers and sisters in your profession, self-compassion. And then the third element was a commitment to something bigger than yourself. And then the third definition I'd like to share is uh, the Isle of Crete, which is one of the Greek isles. They had the definition of a hero is a person of relevance. And relevance meaning being of magnificent use to those who need it when they need it most. Being a hmm. magnificent use to those who need it when they need it most. So, I mean, if you just think of Lane's situation, um, there was heroes were some of those citizens that came and helped her at the end of that event. Shannon uh, was of magnificent use to her in that ambulance when she said, Lane, you're going to be all right. The wounds in your neck are not that bad. You're going to be okay. The doctors, the nurses, the cleaning staff at the hospital that made sure that the hospital was clean, that she was not going to get infections. So I think that a lot of times people hear these stories from elite athletes, uh, Olympic champions, people like Lane and some of the you know, special operations community, and they don't relate it to themselves. And people are heroes every day because of those things, that they deal with those overwhelming challenges, and they are of magnificent use to those who need it when they need it most. And, and I think it's important that people that listen to your show, and in the military, Terry, there's a small percentage of people that are special operations. There's a small percentage of people that will actually be actively engaged in combat. But without everybody else in the support roles, those people can't function and do the things that they do. And all of those other people play critical roles, and uh, they would meet some of those definitions of heroes as well. So uh, I think that might help people to, to apply make uh, the stories that you share on your thing relatable to their pain and relevant to their goals. So I, I just wanted that. to share that. Love those three definitions or, or different views, different takes on it, because it gives some nuance to that topic. And I'm immediately struck by the concept of, like you said, it, there can be the star performers, there's the special forces, there's the all-stars on a basketball team. I know that it makes me think of the uh, AFL, the Australian football team that I played for, and who have since, uh, when I played, they weren't great. When Nowadays, they're like a three out of the four last champions. Uh, and they, they have a saying on their wall that says, the Richmond man, and it defines what it means to be the Richmond man. The Richmond is the name of the team. But they specifically have the there as a word because it's not about being a Richmond man. It's at any given moment, you could be the man who needs to do the job right now. The hero will will come at the right time, as you said. But it's a really cool, really cool definition. So I appreciate you sharing that. It's Brian's. It's all Brian. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> that is what started me on the journey of giving myself permission to be, you know, mentally injured and to 
put the work in to get back. And I did. And now I'm, you know, living my best life with PTSD and it's, it's totally okay. So. I mean, and Brian, I'll, I'll jump to you in a second, but what you've just described there again, I'm going to thank you because that's a really tough thing to just recount, not just the acute incident, but everything you had to go through afterwards to get to the point that you are now living your best life. <laughs> and, and I, it really reinforces that dichotomy of two different ideas or, or mental models of toughness. One being you push through a feeling until it goes away, which sometimes works until it doesn't because some things won't go away and we're not going to be able to be feel good all the time now this might be a two-hour thing and you can't feel good for this next performance just get it done so cool and there are other things where you're like i might carry this for the next 10 years plus and if that's going to be the case how do what what do i need to adjust in my approach in order to be able to still live my best life as you just said i'm living my best life with ptsd really great description and, and again so grateful that you've shared it. Is it got to be so yeah. uh, excellent, bustle with the best of them. Simply impressive, no worry and stressing. Uh, I'm getting my right now. Put your shades on and let me show you how. Yeah.